Threads from the National Tapestry is now on YouTube. Search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On the channel, you'll find full podcast episodes paired with relevant photos and maps about each topic. It's another great way to listen to the show. To search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. This time round, a different delivery, a different approach. Rather than anecdotes and stories from a biography, battle, or campaign, this time, a series of facts, figures, theories, and themes that set the stage for waging civil war. This session, strategy, tactics, arms, and technology, a basis for understanding why our civil conflict was so long, so costly. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. We've all read about or seen the images of mass civil war formations. Soldiers marching shoulder to shoulder across open fields and into withering concentrated sheets of iron and lead and wondered, my God, why? A new war with modernized weapons, but old tactics. Why? Because West Point professors and military manuals reinforced the strategy and tactics of one man, Napoleon Bonaparte. The inspiration for many of those professors and source for those who authored those manuals was Baron Antoine-Henri Jomini, who wrote in the first decade of the 19th century, A general in the French army and later in Russian service, it was he who, as historian Emery M. Thomas put it, translated much of Napoleon's genius from words and deeds to paper and ink in his treatise on tactics. By doing so, Jomini became one of the most celebrated writers in Napoleonic strategy and tactics. According to another historian, John Shy, Jomini deserves the dubious title of founder of modern strategy. He took the view that the amount of force deployed should be kept to the minimum in order to lower casualties. He believed war was not art, but science. Prior to the American Civil War, his translated writings were the only works on military strategy taught at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Thus, the regular Army officers who became general officers for both the Union and Confederacy began the conflict using Jomanian principles. There was another who contributed mightily to those in political and military power during the American Civil War, and that was Karl Philipp Gottfried von Clausewitz. A Prussian soldier and German military theorist, he stressed the moral and political aspects of war. His most notable work, Von Krieg on War, Though unfinished at the time of his death in November of 1831, he delivered a romantic conception of warfare. He stressed the dialectic of how opposite factors interact and noted how unexpected new developments which unfolded under the fog of war called for rapid decisions by alert commanders. In opposition to Jomini, he argued war could not be quantified or reduced to map work and graphs, and as evidenced by his definitions of strategy and tactics, he was quotable. One of his most famous, war is not merely a political act, but also a political instrument, a continuation of political relations, a carrying out of the same by other means. That working definition won wide acceptance, and looking about our world even today still applies. From these two, Jomini and von Clausewitz, 
American military men gleaned a great deal. To particularly Clausewitz, warfare was an extension of politics. But once shooting began, generals had to forget political objectives and focus on destroying the opposing army. To do this, Jomini wrote that a good general applied strength against weakness. He had to have a large army and had to move or maneuver his army in such a way as to take advantage of mass. His good general had to carry the battle to the enemy and maintain an offensive posture as often as possible. The defensive was only valuable to gain time and opportunity to, once again, regain the offensive. And his good general took advantage of technology and perfected organization and execution. One might sum his strategic wisdom in three words— mass, and maneuver. Simply put, war was the business of moving friends and smashing foes. Now, neither Jomini nor von Clausewitz were around to advise American Civil War generals, or for that matter, counsel civilian leaders. But when both Union and Confederate leaders began to concoct strategy, it was absolutely vital for them to understand their available resources to make war. One might imagine the sobering realities when Abraham Lincoln, Jefferson Davis, and their inner circles digested these selected statistics from the 1860 census. In total population, the North had 19.1 million the South, 12.3 million, and almost 4 million of them were slaves. Military population, the North had 3.5 million, the South, perhaps 1 million. As far as existing army, at the time that the war first began, the North had some 16,000 soldiers. The South was starting from scratch. Existing Navy. The North had 90 ships, yes, most old and antiquated, and some 7,600 sailors, but at least they had a Navy. The South, again, starting from scratch. Farmland. The North had $4.7 billion worth of such. The South, only $1.8 billion. Livestock. The North had $716 million worth of livestock. The South, only $390 million. As far as shipping, the North had 11,079 trading vessels. The South, only 819. Railroad mileage, the North had 22,000 miles. The South, only 8,500. And industrial establishments, the North had 110,000 factories, the South, some 18,000. From these numbers, a few sobering nuggets to fully appreciate the Union's overwhelming advantage. Massachusetts produced more manufactured goods than all the future states of the Confederacy combined. New York and Pennsylvania each produced more than twice all the future Confederate states. New York alone had nearly as much banking capital as all 15 slave states combined. At the onset of the conflict, the North had 17 times more textile goods than the South, produced 15 times as much iron, had 24 times as many locomotives, and 32 times as many firearms. Yes, the Confederacy had King Cotton. Yes, in 1860, close to 6 million bales of it, worth $191 million, and represented 57% of all United States exports. But the South had only 6% of the nation's ability to do anything with it. It would be with considerable consideration of these numbers that leaders in North and South had to formulate their strategic options for waging war. 
a quick aside. Let's note the difference between strategy and tactics. To do that, we have von Clausewitz's classic distinction. To him, tactics is the art of using troops in battle. Strategy is the art of using battles to win the war. To Webster, tactics has more to do with winning specific battles that make up strategic campaigns. Strategy is the art of the general, the science and art of military command, exercised to meet the enemy in combat under advantageous conditions. The measures employed to win campaigns and wars. Now, as to Union strategy, the North realized it would have to be the aggressor. And then 75-year-old General-in-Chief Winfield Scott planned accordingly. Aware of the numbers from the 1860 census, he planned a war of attrition. He wanted to hold the border states, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri, and use them as avenues for invasion. He wanted to blockade some 3,500 miles of southern coastline and 11 ports in particular. Norfolk, Virginia, Newburn, Beaufort, Wilmington, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Fernandina and Pensacola, Florida, Mobile, Alabama, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Galveston, Texas. And Scott wanted to gain control of the Mississippi River, split the South, and use that body of water to supply and launch Union armies into the Confederate interior. His plan became known as the Anaconda Plan. Squeeze the South into submission. But an overzealous North, filled with naive patriots who believed the war would be a quick affair, scoffed at a strategic plan that would require months, even years, to implement. With the Southern capital moved to Virginia in the spring of 1861, Many in the North believed Union military strategy should simply be on to Richmond. Take the geographic queen on the Confederate chessboard and game over. Down in the southern capital, Jefferson Davis was quite aware of his nation's storehouse and lack of it. He and his advisors conjured a Confederate strategy that might be likened to the American colonies during the War for Independence, except for glowing opportunity remain on the defensive. The South could win the war by simply not losing it. And Confederate minds maintaining a defensive posture might also enhance the Confederacy's image to the world. Europe, in particular, would watch an underdog nation wage defensive war, blocking advances from an aggressor. Now, we should note there are various stages of defense. Confederate defense could not be static. Though we don't have a Confederate written strategic record like that of Scott's in the Union, one was formulated that borrowed from Jomini. It might be termed an offensive-defensive strategy. Essentially, stand on defense. Allow the enemy to advance, and then when time and circumstances were favorable, strike the invader and destroy him. Again, think back to the War for Independence. Despite constant military reverses, George Washington kept his army in the field and fought only when he believed his army might win. Now, what of the operational military units that had to execute those strategies? Well, let's progress from greatest to least. The largest infantry unit at that time was an army, of which there were at least 16 Union and 23 Confederate. As of July 17, 1862 in the North, and September 18th that same year in the South, an army was comprised of corps. A corps was divided into divisions. Each division was made up of brigades, which I might add was the basis for most Civil War attacks. A brigade was then comprised of the most beloved unit, the regiment. And the regiment was comprised of usually 10 companies. 
platoons, and squads were ad hoc tactical elements, not formal units at that time. And there was another unit, the battalion, but more often than not, it was an artillery unit of organization. So, in reverse order, from smallest to greatest, 10 companies made up one regiment. Anywhere from three to five regiments made up one brigade. Two, three, or sometimes four brigades made up a division. Two, three, or sometimes four divisions made up one corps. And depending on whether it was a Union Army or Confederate, anywhere from two to five corps might comprise an army. And while we're at it, Union armies tended to be named for a river or body of water where they operated like the Army of the Potomac or Army of the Tennessee. Confederate armies were usually named for the geographic region in which they operated, like the Army of Northern Virginia or the Army of Tennessee. Of course, there may be an occasional exception to what we just went over, but within each army, there were three branches, infantry, artillery, cavalry. All three would again, for the most part, be under men who had been trained similarly in the art of war. That being said, we should provide some background as to their military education, particularly in the world of tactics. Many leaders in the American Civil War, both military and civilian, cut their command teeth from experiences in the Mexican War. There, tactics were almost exclusively based upon weaponry. The main shoulder arm of that war, the smoothbore musket, one representative example, the Springfield Model 1822 smoothbore. It was clumsy to handle, required 12 commands to load, and with its use of black powder, it was unreliable in damp weather and had no uniform ignition system. Although many smoothbores were flintlocks, some had a percussion ignition system which had been introduced in 1841. The smoothbore's greatest limitation? Inaccuracy and short range. Tactical theorists and military officers realized those limitations and compensated by keeping infantrymen in close ordered lines, thus concentrating their firepower. Winfield Scott's own work, Infantry Tactics, stressed close order formations, regiments in tightly packed lines of either two or three ranks, although the third rank was suspended by the War Department in 1835. Scott maintained that ranks, lines, should be only 13 inches apart and intervals between supporting regiments or brigades should be 22 paces. All men in rank were to be elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder. They advanced with a direct step, a 28-inch stride at a common time rate, which was 90 steps per minute. Scott allowed that 28-inch stride to be used until men went to quick time, which was a rate of 110 steps per minute. Any faster rate was discouraged, except for extraordinary circumstances, one being the last eight or ten paces preceding the shock of a charge. Then, steps might be increased to 140 per minute, or even a run. However, that could not be done for long, for massed formations would come apart. While all this was delivered by men in a line, there were three alternatives. One was a column which meant delivering an attack with decisive impact at a certain point in an enemy's line. Attacks by rank, or line, relied on concentration of musketry, volleys of fire. Column attacks relied on shock tactics. The last alternative was the square, primarily used to resist attacks by enemy cavalry. All three formations, line, column, and square, were successful in Mexico, and that, with the advent of rifled muskets and artillery, meant deadly consequences in the next war. In Mexico, there was American success in its mobility. 
particularly in the arm of artillery, which was shifted quickly to meet any threat and pushed forward to support assaults and harass Mexican retreat. And in the conflict, American cavalry was also used successfully. Often, the mounted element fought dismounted, but their supreme moment came when ordered to a mounted saber charge. This tactic was often used while in pursuit or riding down infantry in retreat. And no question, broken infantry formations were extremely vulnerable to the saber charge. Time and time again in Mexico, American forces took the tactical offensive, suffered fairly light losses, and found success. Close order musket and bayonet tactics succeeded in every major engagement of that war. Those tactics were not that different from Napoleon's earlier in the century. His infantry fought in lines and relied on disciplined close-order formations, concentrated musketry, and the bayonet. Artillery was used defensively and offensively. Cavalry was held ready to saber-charge the enemy once their lines broke or were in retreat. Because American armies were so successful in Mexico, there was little tactical innovation. Yet, in the decade after the Mexican War, all of this, the emphasis of offensive over defensive, vigorous assaults, overrunning defensive lines and entrenchments, all of that made obsolete by changes in weaponry and one in particular, rifling. More on that in a moment. In Mexico, Jomini's principles found in his 1838 summary of the art of war were reinforced, and the most important military theorist in America shared the glad tidings. That man, whose influence stretched from the 1830s to the 1860s, was West Point professor Dennis Hart Mahan. In his most influential work, an elementary treatise on advanced guard, output, and detachment service of troops, and the manner of posting and handling them in presence of an enemy, Mahan offered a general plan for the tactical offensive. He divided the attacking force into an advanced guard, main body, and reserve. The advanced guard, or skirmishers, cleared the way for the attack. The main body and the reserve followed in columns. When the advance guard was stopped, it fell back on the main body, which would then either deploy into line and open fire or make a concerted charge with the bayonet. One of Mahan's students was particularly inspired. It was the future Union Major General Henry W. Halleck, who borrowed heavily from Professor Mahan and Jomini to write Elements of Military Art and Science. Published in 1846, Halleck echoed their sentiments. A defending commander should always try to regain the offensive even if he were defending an entrenched position. Not only was the tactical offensive preached, so was field entrenchment. Mahan's 1836 work, A Complete Treatise of Field Fortifications, made him the foremost American expert on field works before the Civil War. He argued that field entrenchments were in the best interest of a society that relied on volunteer soldiers because they helped spare lives and put militia on par with regular soldiers. Tactical theorists respected field entrenchments, but believed a vigorous offensive would overrun them. Mahan agreed to a point. He thought entrenchments should be stormed by bayonet alone or by combined action of artillery and bayonet. In his opinion, musketry alone could not carry fieldworks. Indeed, the use of the bayonet was highly regarded after the Mexican War. In 1852, the future Army of the Potomac commander George McClellan extolled its use in his work, Manual of Bayonet Exercise, which was essentially a translation of French bayonet tactics. At the start of the American Civil War, R. Milton Carey spread the bayonet gospel to the Confederacy in his Skirmisher's Drill and Bayonet Exercise, which he, like McClellan, borrowed from French theory. On his title page, Carey included, The Bayonet 
is the weapon of the brave. The musket companion with the bayonet continued to be the main weapon of infantry, and to make it effective, close order formations were mandated. Thinking back, it is difficult to gauge the lasting influence of those teachings on those seated in West Point classrooms. For example, Ulysses S. Grant said he never read any of Jomini's writings. Regardless of who bought in or not, the repeated sermons about close order formations, musket and bayonet attacks were all undone on Civil War battlefields, made obsolete, as we have mentioned, by advances in weaponry. Those existing tactics dated and deadly when more modern shoulder arms were introduced. Now, rifles or rifled weapons had been around for some time, but they were not carried by the bulk of soldiers in the rank and file. Those that did have them found they had superior distance and accuracy, but were clumsy and slow to load. At that time, rifled bullets were slightly larger than the bore, and it made ramming them home difficult. That ordnance problem was solved by Captain Claude Etienne Mini who developed an oblong rifled bullet small enough in diameter to be easily dropped into a barrel. Its hollow base expanded upon firing and fit the rifling of the barrel. Its accuracy and more efficient loading made the rifle, when used on those employing old tactics, a marriage in hell, a true killer. In 1855, the United States government converted to producing the rifled musket. The individual who suggested this change wrote the year before that he believed the rifle would supersede the smoothbore, but he did urge great caution in adopting the rifle, for as he put it, the waste of public money is one of the greatest of evils resulting from the adoption of an erroneous system. That curious report was made by President Franklin Pierce's Secretary of War, who just happened to be Jefferson Davis. The old smoothbores had a range of some 160 to 360 yards, although to be quite honest, accuracy much shorter. The rifled musket, which became the American Civil War's basic shoulder weapon, could be destructive at a much greater distance. One basic shoulder weapon for federal troops during the Civil War was the Springfield models 1861 and 1862. With the destruction of the Harper's Ferry Armory, the Springfield, Massachusetts Armory took on primary importance. It turned out 793,434 rifled muskets between January 1, 1861 and December 31, 1865. It fired a 58 caliber Minet bullet, or as Americans would put it, a mini bullet or mini ball, and had an effective range of between 300 to 400 yards, although it could kill at 1,000. The Confederacy had comparably effective weapons, and their favorite may have been the British-made Enfield, which had to be brought in past the Union blockade. Adopted by the English in 1855, it fired a 57-7 caliber projectile and had an effective firing range of 300 to 400 yards and a maximum range of around 1,200. One quick note about the large calibers of both. In World War II, 50 caliber machine guns were used on United States naval vessels to bring down Japanese aircraft. In the American Civil War, 57-7 and 58 caliber shoulder weapons were used to bring down men. Under ideal conditions, the loading sequence for both the Springfield and Enfield was load, handle cartridge, tear cartridge, charge cartridge, draw rammer, ram cartridge, return rammer, Prime, shoulder arms, ready, aim, fire. Now with all this new firepower, 
There was a need for a new tactical manual, and one came in 1855. It was a two-volume work written by future Confederate General William J. Hardy and entitled Rifle and Light Infantry Tactics. To compensate for greater firepower, Hardy made several significant changes to Winfield Scott's tactical system. He kept Scott's basic rates of advance but added more rapid ones. To compensate for rifled weapons, attackers had to advance more quickly, so Hardy introduced double-quick time and the run. For double-quick time, the stride was increased to 33 inches and executed at 165 steps per minute. In extraordinary circumstances, double-quick could be extended to 180 steps. Hardy reasoned that at that rate, 4,000 yards could be covered in about 25 minutes. Hardy's manual made other provisions to compensate the rate and accuracy of rifled fire. His system made it possible for troops to deploy from column to line more quickly than Scott's mandated. Hardy allowed commanders to deploy a column by platoon into line of battle either while at a halt or while marching. With Scott's system, halts were constant, and standing still in the face of rifled fire, deadly. Hardy's great contribution was the ability to pass from one formation to another while on the march. The system also provided for loose order tactics for skirmishers, allowing them to advance at quick time or double quick. In Scott's system, skirmishers were deployed far more deliberately. Despite all these improvements, Hardy's manual still was pretty much the same as Scott's. U.S. Grant himself noted that all Hardy's work was, as he put it, nothing more than common sense and the progress of the age applied to Scott's system. Yes, looser order for skirmishers and faster advances, but still in place, the same close order formations, the same elbow-to-elbow ranks separated by 13 inches. Hardy's manual became the Bible for both sides as they prepared for civil war, with one exception. After Hardy went south, Union Major General Silas Casey in 1862 wrote the three-volume System of Infantry Tactics, which was based on the same source as Hardy's and added little, if anything, new. No matter. Casey's work was promoted in the North because they refused to credit a former United States officer who now wore gray. There were several new tactical manuals, but none suggested new tactical theory that fully appreciated the deadly impact of rifling, and particularly in its use in the tactical defensive and in the value of men firing from field entrenchments. In result, With the continued use of close-order formations, American Civil War battlefields became killing fields. And yes, rifling also applied to artillery. One example was the Parrot, which was named for Robert Parker Parrot. A Parrot field piece could always be identified by a heavy wrought iron band that was shrunk around its breech, where pressure was greatest. With twice the range of smoothbores, it, like shoulder weapons, had greater range and accuracy. But interestingly, infantry feared smoothbore cannon far more. Despite the fact that the maximum effective range for rifled artillery was increased to about 2,500 yards, rifled artillery had smaller bores and therefore could not fire nearly as large rounds of canister as the old, reliable 12-pounder Napoleon smoothbore, which had been introduced back in 1856 and named for Napoleon III of France. The 12-pounder fired a 4.62-inch projectile. Initially bronze, it could also fire grape, shot, solid shot, spherical case, shell, and canister. Its maximum effective range was between 800 and 1,000 yards, although adding rifling to it could add range. Interestingly, the Napoleon was the favorite gun for both armies. 
In fact, by the end of the war, about half the field artillery used by the Army of the Potomac were 12-pound Napoleons. So, rifling, it seems, benefited infantry far more than artillery. In fact, rifled muskets meant field artillery could not now unlimber within what had been before easy canister range of an enemy's line for fear of being shot to pieces. Honestly, by 1861, the rifled musket relegated Civil War artillery to a largely defensive role. And it did as well to those on horseback, the mounted element. Before, the tactical offensive was always desired by cavalry, particularly the saber charge. Not anymore. Infantry with rifled muskets could now empty so many saddles that cavalry was more times than not relegated to protection of flanks, reconnaissance, and rounding up stragglers. Suffice to say, in the period between the Mexican War and the Civil War, there were greater changes in weaponry than in tactical theory and manuals. What changes were made had little clue what the firepower of the rifled musket could and would do. So, the formula for Civil War commanders was a deadly one. Armed with von Clausewitz, they wanted to win battles by destroying the enemy. Yet, the truth, as it played out, was that the majority were satisfied with much less and often fell back upon the notion, supported to a degree by Jomini's emphasis upon control of decisive terrain, that it was simply enough to just drive the enemy from the field of battle. And regardless of their intent to win, went at it using modern weapons with outdated tactics. For far too often, they massed their men, lined them up, then ordered them forward over open ground into deadly fire from an opposing force. Pure and simple, it was collision tactics. Forward into the face of an enemy using rifled weapons. So costly were those tactics that commanders sought maneuver, envelopment, or flanking, hit the enemy in front or rear, put more of your men at a place where the enemy could not match your mass or where the enemy's position was compromised by an unanchored flank, like the flank of Union Major General O.O. Howard's 11th Corps when Stonewall Jackson hit it at Chancellorsville. While infantry was, by far, the most important component of Civil War combat, a few extra details about Civil War artillery. Whether big and fixed, or light and highly mobile, artillery was supposed to batter enemy fortifications and their guns, destroy formations, and cut down enemy soldiers. Those guns could either be field, seacoast, siege, prairie, or mountain. They were made either of iron, bronze, or brass, or perhaps even steel. While predominantly muzzle loaders, there were a few breech loaders and all fired projectiles that matched the need of the moment. Solid shot was used for battering fortifications and massed troops. Shell, bursting charges, was used against buildings, earthworks, and troops under cover. Spherical case, shrapnel, was used against bodies of troops usually at ranges of 500 to 1,500 yards. And of course, the infantry's nightmare, canister or case shot, which was used from some 350 yards in. Thus far, we've mentioned the themes of strategy, tactics, tactical offense and defense, flanks, envelopment, and the like. But to add to your strategy and tactics course 101, here are some military terms applicable to the American Civil War. The list and their definitions supplied by Mark M. Boatner's definitive work, The Civil War Dictionary, which was published in 1959. Attack. An attack may be classified as frontal, penetrations, envelopments, and turning movements. With a reserve, a commander normally masses his force to make a main attack, and most likely a secondary attack. The greatest possible concentration of combat power is in the main attack. 
The secondary is allocated minimum essential combat power, yet yields maximum assistance to the main attack by deceiving the enemy as to the true location of the main attack, therefore forcing the enemy to commit his reserves prematurely at the wrong place and or fixing certain enemy troops in a position where they cannot be shifted to oppose the main attack. The commander's reserve is held out of battle initially, but can be committed to clinch victory or prepare for covering a retreat. An example of the piecemeal use of one's reserve would be Major General George McClellan's use at Antietam. Another term, concentric advance or concentration on the battlefield. It is a maneuver to which amateur strategists are much attracted and which almost always leads to their defeat in detail. This type of advance may be contrasted with concentration off the battlefield, which means bringing separated units to within supporting distance at a point just far enough from the enemy to avoid fighting until your forces are ready. Napoleon avoided concentric advances. Counter-reconnaissance. This is use of measures to keep enemy reconnaissance forces from gathering information about your force. Example, in June 1863, when Jeb Stewart's cavalry plugged Blue Ridge Mountain gaps to frustrate the prying eyes of Union cavalry as Lee marched toward Maryland and Pennsylvania. Coup de main, a sudden and vigorous attack for the purpose of instantaneously capturing a position. Coup d'oeil, it literally means glance. It is an old military term used in evaluating generals and means the ability to rapidly and accurately size up a situation, particularly with respect to terrain. Defeat in detail. In the military sense, this term does not mean annihilation or complete defeat, but does mean the defeat in turn of the separated parts of a force. To keep this from happening, commander keeps his units within supporting distance. Another term, demonstration a show of force on the front where the decision is not sought, done with the intent of deceiving the enemy. No advance against the enemy is made by the demonstrating force. Confederate General Jeb Magruder was masterful in demonstrating before McClellan on the Virginia Peninsula. Envelopment, an attack directed toward the enemy's flank or flanks or rear. And yes, there can be single or double envelopment. Turning movement, a wide envelopment that avoids the enemy's main position and by threatening some vital point to the rear, forces him to leave his original position and fight elsewhere. It gets its name from its effect of turning the enemy out of his position. The turning movement does not involve fighting the enemy on his original position. Joe Hooker's opening of the Chancellorsville campaign turned much of Lee's army out of Fredericksburg in late April and early May of 1863. Faint, a show of force to mislead the enemy. It normally involves a limited objective attack by a small portion of the total force. A demonstration, on the other hand, has the same purpose but differs in that no attack is actually made. Frontal attack, often used in the literal sense as an attack against the enemy's front. In the strict sense, it is an attack wherein the available forces are equally distributed and strikes the enemy all along his front. It is generally quite costly and ineffective except in secondary attacks since they violate the principles of mass and economy of force. Classic examples of frontal attacks that were disastrous would be Burnside's repeated attacks before Marie's Heights at Fredericksburg and the Pickett-Pettigrew-Trimble assault on the third day at Gettysburg. General Reserve. That body is under the control of the overall commander, as contrasted with local reserves under his subordinate commanders. 
in general. Reserves were used to counterattack, reinforce one's own lines, make a retrenchment in the rear if one's lines were crumbling, wait in reserve, make a rear guard stand, create a massed battery of artillery, or make a wide flanking maneuver. Interior lines indicates a situation in which one commander has an advantage in being able to employ his forces against the enemy faster than the enemy can counter his moves. The correct use of this concept has been the hallmark of successful generals down through the ages. Boatner explains a commander may possess interior lines by virtue of a central position, like Lee at Antietam or Meade at Gettysburg, but he may also possess interior lines by means of superior lateral communications. For example, in 1863, the Union Superior Railroad Network meant it could move reinforcements from Virginia to Chattanooga, Tennessee faster than the Confederates could do so, even though Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee held a central position and had a shorter distance to travel. If a commander does not possess interior lines to start with, he may get them by strategic penetration, which was one of Napoleon's favorite maneuvers. Meeting engagement. An unexpected collision between opposing forces that takes place before either can execute a planned attack or defense. The American Civil War's classic example, Gettysburg. Oblique order or an echelon, also known as a progressive attack. It involves attacking with one flank refused so that the other flank makes contact with the enemy first. The thinking was to reinforce this advanced wing so as to bring overwhelming strength against the point of the enemy line first encountered, thus crushing this segment of his line and then rolling up his flank as successive parts of your own line make contact. This, however, is not suitable for use against an enemy who has battlefield mobility. Confederate generals were quite fond of this attack maneuver. Southern artillerist E.P. Alexander wrote of its use. We had used this method on four occasions at Seven Pines, Gaines Mill, Frazier's Farm or Glendale, and Malvern Hill, and always with poor success. And for the Confederates, add July 2nd, 1863 at Gettysburg to that list. Piecemeal. The military term for committing portions of a unit as they become available. It is common in a meeting engagement and is considered a good tactic provided you are in position to build up forces faster than the enemy. This is what allowed Lee to prevail the first day at Gettysburg. Conversely, George McClellan was unsuccessful at Antietam because he committed his overwhelming force in piecemeal, which allowed Lee to counter, thanks to his interior lines. Poids d'appui. It literally means a support of fulcrum. This is an old strategic term for the different advantageous posts such as castles, fortified villages, etc., in which the general of an army takes possession of in order to secure his position. It can also be defined as a tactical or strategic base, a la William Sherman's supply base in Chattanooga for his Atlanta campaign. Rebel Yell. First used at First Manassas, it was one of the most effective Confederate psychological weapons. Described as a high-pitched shout and supposed by some to be a variation of the southern fox hunter's cry, it invariably produced an eerie feeling within enemy lines. Reconnaissance. Efforts made by an armed force to gather information about the enemy's activities. It does not include espionage. Reconnaissance in force. An attack by a sizable unit, not simply a combat patrol, to locate and test the enemy's strength. An example would be Union Cavalry at Brandy Station in June of 1863, just as Lee was moving north toward Maryland and Pennsylvania. Spoiling attack. This is an operation used to disrupt an impending attack while the enemy is still in the process of forming 
or assembling. Supporting distance. The distance between two or more units can be traveled in time for one to come to the aid of the other. The distance might be qualified given the size of the two or more units. Two regiments may need to be within a mile or so of one another, whereas two divisions might be within a day's march. A commander who has concentrated his force avoids being beaten in detail. Napoleon was a master at this with his use of detailed time and space computations. He would maneuver to gain interior lines and defeat in detail an enemy whose units were not within supporting distance. Now, to add to these terms, some thematic minutiae that may be of interest. Concepts crucial to successfully waging war. Logistics is the ability to supply and feed an army, as in any battle or campaign, and regardless of continent or century, this concept was crucial for Civil War armies in the field. Here's an idea of what might be expected to sustain an army during that time. An army of 100,000 men would need 2,500 wagons, 35,000 animals, and all would consume some 600 tons of supplies each day. Each day. If supply was needed above what an army could carry, it might turn to water transport, which actually was the most efficient. Another mode, a working railroad, but it had three times the cost of water transport. If the army was far from supply by water or railroad, wagon and mule transportation were needed, and that was ten times the cost of rail. As we made mention, the most effective means was by river steamboats, and they came in all shapes and sizes, but most maintained a speed of five to ten knots and had a payload similar to that of a train. Current, of course, was important. Around three and a half knots at New Orleans and five and a half at Vicksburg. But river or water transportation was more preferable than rail. As we've established, the North had more locomotives, railroad mileage, and the ability to build and maintain more. But since Union armies had to be the aggressor, there was the issue of distance and traveling over areas given to raid. A supply train normally carried 500 to 1,000 men, or 100 tons of supplies. Perhaps reach a speed of 25 miles per hour or more, but an overall average of 150 miles in 24 hours was considered fast for large-scale movements. Then there was the time-honored mule-drawn wagon train. They moved no faster than men on foot, but each carried about one ton, including forage, for their six mule teams. That amount would be equivalent to 1,000 full rations, but of course, the farther an army moved into the southern interior, the more difficult to move supplies from base to the front. An encamped army corps of 20,000 men might require 500 to 1,000 wagons to operate, even if that army was quite close to its supply depot, landing stage, or railroad. And of course, all this took a backseat when armies opted to live off the land, as Grant did in Mississippi in the spring and summer of 1863, and most famously, Sherman's in Georgia in 1864 and South Carolina in early 1865. Now, a few details about an army in the field, one on the march. According to a drill book from the time, a column of four had one yard between each man. Hence, 1,000 men would occupy 250 yards of road. In reality, armies moving along at route step, at ease, or arms at will, were longer, probably extending some 500 to 700 yards, plus even more space for attached staff, baggage, cattle, and camp followers. Given those standards, here is the approximate length of several military units with baggage. An infantry brigade might stretch 0.8 miles. An infantry division with baggage might stretch 4 miles. An infantry corps 
14 miles. Cavalry Brigade, 1.5 miles. Cavalry Division, 6 miles. Artillery Battery, 0.3 miles. Army Headquarters and Staff, 3 miles. And a unit's approximate speed while on the march, an infantry division, 2.5 miles per hour, which its ability to exceed eight hours was good. Infantry corps, 2.5 miles per hour or less. Cavalry, four or more miles per hour. Horse artillery, four miles per hour. Foot artillery, 2.5 miles per hour. A separate wagon train, 2.5 miles per hour or less. Given all this, we should mention deployment time from on the march or column to battle lines. In theory, an infantry division could deploy from a march in half an hour, but in practice required two or three times that. And correcting the alignment of each unit, company, regiment, brigade, within a division's line of battle might take an additional half hour. And then what of communication between units and commanders? Written orders for delivery or communication had to be short, legible, unambiguous, informative, and sometimes inspiring. Orders had to state from whom they came to whom they were intended and why. Times and places of movement with what body of troops had to be clear. And there were essentially three ways to do that. Couriers either with oral or written-down messages, wigwag, and field telegraph. Couriers were used most often, anyone from an officer's servant to a staff officer. The obvious weakness was the same as its strength. It was personal and by word of mouth or written note. The wigwag system of flags could pass short messages across battlefields if the terrain and weather allowed. Field Telegraph was at first more strategic, but as the war continued, particularly for Union armies, communication between headquarters and Corps Division commanders was possible in the field. Here's an estimate of time for a signal from one party to reach the next. For scouts and spies to an Army commander, it might require 72 hours. With strategic info to an Army commander... 24 hours. A message from the central government to an army commander might require 24 hours. Outlying cavalry to an army commander might require 12 hours. An infantry picket to an army commander might require 6 hours. Wigwag or couriers from within to an army commander, 1 hour. Army commander to a corps commander, 1 hour. Corps headquarters to a division headquarter, 30 minutes. Division headquarters to a brigade headquarters, 20 minutes. Brigade headquarters to regimental headquarters, 15 minutes. Regimental headquarters to company commander, 5 minutes. And company commander to enlisted man, 1 minute. And one of those men, from company to corps commanders, who were charged with leadership. A corps commander was a very senior and trusted general, eligible to command the entire army if need be. A division commander was on the way up, and in battle needed to be near the firing line, but freed up enough to manage his attack and reserves. He would often be responsible for the tactical details of an attack or defense. The brigade commander was a soldier's soldier. He led from the front, for as we've mentioned, his unit was the basic tactical unit of the American Civil War. The regimental commander was responsible for only a small part of the battlefield, maybe only 50 to 100 yards of a front. There, he kept his 10 companies aligned and in control. Seldom would he make tactical decisions, but he had to serve as an example and display high qualities of personal leadership. The company commander, in theory, had two or three commissioned officers plus ten non-commissioned officers to support him.
He marched on foot with his men and shared almost all their discomforts and dangers. Too often, students of the American Civil War pore over events that led armies to a particular battlefield and then the detail of tactical movements during fighting. But what happened after a battle ended? Clearing up meant rallying scattered units, scattered regiments, and regrouping them in order to return them to an effective fighting unit. Their supply of ammunition, food, and water had to be restocked. With casualties and deaths, there would be a need to reallocate command appointments and figure out one's new fighting strength. And, of course, the care for as many of the wounded as possible was paramount. If still on the battlefield, salvage anything of use especially money, shoes, and weapons. For many common soldiers, after a battle, letters would be written to assure friends and family they survived or explain a friend's fortunate or unfortunate fate. And prisoners would be collected and sent to the rear. And graves would have to be dug for soldiers who had fallen upon the field. And finally, deal with disciplinary cases that arose from the fighting. Now granted, this session has been a shotgun approach to the American Civil War worlds of strategy, tactics, arm, and technology. But to summarize, all four can be linked to the one phenomenon that drastically affected, dare I say, revolutionized each. And that would be the development of rifled weapons. Forgive for repeating, but to summarize... Largely armed with a smoothbore weapon and bayonet and using them with success in the Mexican War, the methodology of the tactical offensive was reinforced. But the development, widespread use, and firepower of rifling changed all that. Its use reinforced the tactical defensive. The development of field entrenchments added to that evolution. By the last months of the conflict, when soldiers reached a destination, they immediately began to dig in. By doing so, the American Civil War became the first war in which Americans extensively used field entrenchments. Rifled weapons made obsolete the tactical demand for use of the bayonet. The new technology figuratively and literally blew apart Napoleonic warfare. No tactical formation, the line, column, or combination of the two, was ever able to overcome the advantage of the rifle when used on the tactical defensive. Accurate massed fire and difficult terrain quickly broke up countless Civil War assaults. Their traditional ideas about the offensive, elan, the bayonet, and close-order formations were dead. This can also be applied to the military arm of artillery as well. Again, so successful from 1846 to 1848 as an offensive ploy, rifling turned this branch of service into one most effective used on the defensive. And the third arm as well. Cavalry officers wanted to be used offensively, but the range and fire of rifled muskets not only made cavalry most vulnerable, but forced drastic change in mounted tactics. So much so that the future of that branch of service was made uncertain. And while we're at it, another perspective we should address. Not a technical one, but human. Many American Civil War leaders, because of their success and experiences in Mexico, were made prisoners to the past. Their victories reinforced everything that had been written about war, that continued to be written and taught at West Point, yet dated. Indeed, it is most interesting that the first leaders to recognize the killing power of the new technology were those who had seen little or no action in the Mexican War. And for those leaders who never or refused to adapt, who continued to order close-order attacks into field entrenchments filled with dug-in soldiers using rifled weapons, well, as Captain Henry O. Dwight of the 20th Ohio put it, this, then, is what an assault means. A slaughter pen, a charnel house, and an army of weeping mothers and sisters at home. Thanks to Eli Whitney's interchangeable parts, the Union was able to manufacture around two and a half million small arms and brought in another one million from Europe, almost all rifled. 
The Confederacy, it manufactured only around 250,000 and brought in some 800,000 which were run through the blockade. Again, the majority rifled. The Union preponderance and the number of rifled weapons, in truth, figured prominently in its winning the war. But military leaders had to order their use and adapt tactics based on their fire and kill power. Remember U.S. Grant, although a junior officer in the Mexican War and fully exposed to Mahan's teachings, admitted he learned little about the art of war at West Point. In fact, he stated that none of his instructors excited him. Grant learned while he was on the job. Experience over theory. Of the 85 men who obtained the rank of major general or higher in the Confederacy, 71% were graduates of West Point and 61% participated in the Mexican War. Statistics are fairly similar for those who wore stars on their Union blue shoulders. Therefore, the great majority were slaves to their education. They practiced obsolete tactics. They were dinosaurs with time and technology screaming for change. Their command decisions in a new war with modernized technology while using the last war's tactics? Tragic. It meant that far too many major battles of the American Civil War were costly, ended in tactical draws, and even in victory or defeat, either did not pursue and finish the job or allowed an opponent's army to retreat from the field and live to fight another day. As it turned out, to live to fight for four long years, resulting in staggering losses. The death of some 750,000 Americans and easily over one million casualties. Tragic indeed. When next we gather, we'll return to fields of battle. Back to the spring, summer, and fall of 1864, when Confederate strategy repeated a strategic campaign that two years earlier had been a stunning success. I hope you'll join us when we return to the so-called breadbasket of the South, where Southern military measures hoped to ease the relentless pressure of U.S. Grant's overland campaign. Next up, the ebb and flow of drama that comprised the 1864 Shenandoah Valley Campaign. Yet again, glad tidings, for we have yet another patron and another from across the Atlantic in Europe. Skull to you, Jan, in Trelleborg, Sweden. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate to your commitment for what we are doing here at Threads from the National Tapestry. Thank you so much. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by The Badge Maker, your go-to source for American Civil War Corps badges and other handmade, American-made historical reproductions. Contact the proprietor, Joseph Valicenti, and place your orders at www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com. That's www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com.